And we all got dreams, we all want things But what you gonna do for it, how you gonna move for it, what you gonna be And do you believe, you can do anything But what you gonna do for it, how you gonna move for it, what you gonna be Another edition of Outside Shots presented by BetMGM. Remember that you can use bonus code the lines one word to get up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet loses, whether you decide to tail or fade our college basketball picks here on today's episode of Outside Shots as we preview the weekend card. Myself, Eli Herskovich, Steven Andrus. You can follow the lines on X at the lines US. Monster, monster slate this weekend, Steven. Historic slate. This will be the fourth time in the AP poll era. There have been three regular season matchups where both teams are ranked in the top 10. And that, that's happening in, the, in a single day. And it's the first time it's happened since December of 1994. So good week to not have the NFL if you're a college basketball fan, because it is a loaded slate, Eli. And let's not waste any time. With a ranked matchup in the A-10 on Friday night, St. Bonaventure goes to number 21 Dayton, 7 p.m. tip-off on ESPN2. Eli, you do not have Dayton ranked in your top 25 at the moment. As we record on Thursday afternoon, spreads are not out for any of the games that we talk about on this show because we want to give you guys plenty of time to analyze the matchups here. But with our good friends at Haslametrics, we can give you a projected spread. And if it's way off from this, then there might be some value on one side. So Haslametrics makes Dayton a little less than a nine point favorite projected over under of 134. So first of all, Eli, why do you hate Dayton not having them in your top 25? And uh, what do you think of this matchup? Heck of a game. And we saw Dayton lose to Richmond as a four and a half, five point favorite last weekend and Richmond undefeated in a 10 play. So I have some concerns about Dayton's defense, top 60 and adjusted defensive efficiency, top 20 and adjusted offensive efficiency. We've seen this kind of story before with teams while you have a superstar in Deron Holmes, kind of a little bit of a paper tiger, even though it's not like Dayton is on the scale or on that side of the scale that the Flyers were when they had OB Toppin back in 2020 during the COVID year. But we're coining this, Stephen, as the Discord game of the week because right. it's a mid-major game. It's got that mid-major flavor. So our users in the Discord channel, if you're not a user already, you could join our free Discord channel at thelines.com, top right-hand corner. We have a over 4,000 people talking college basketball daily. Steven's got his bets in there whenever he puts in a college basketball bet. You could subscribe to those in the roll section. And I make this game around seven and a half, eight. So I'm closer to Haslametrics than maybe the Kempom line. And St. Bonaventure coming off back-to-back wins. Miraculous cover over VCU earlier in the week. Trail by 20 points in the first half. And you cover as about a four and a half point home favorite. So pretty wild in that sense. But Deron Holmes, when you look at this matchup, isn't elite in post-up situations when you think about your typical college basketball big man or in the upper echelon ranks. Very, very good in pick and roll and on cuts. And one of the most veteran-laden St. Bonaventure teams, experience and minutes continuity-wise, has an elite pick-and-roll defense, allowing 0.66 points per possession against those sets per synergy. The offense doesn't do much well when you think about Chad Venning down low and Charles Pride. 
a transfer from a couple years ago. But I don't know if I trust St. Bonaventure's offense enough to that degree when you think about Venning and Pride and their offensive inefficiency at times. Dayton ranks number 350 in adjusted tempo. St. Bonaventure ranks bottom 100 across college basketball. So maybe this is a look toward the under just with St. Bonaventure's defensive edge and their offensive inefficiency. But I think the spread will probably be lined roughly correctly. Yeah, I, I just like how smart Dayton is offensively. This is a team that knows what they do well and does it a lot. And it's working out really well. In conference play in the A-10, they're not only number one in effective field goal percentage offense, but they're number one in effective field goal percentage defense as well. Overall this season, top 10 in the nation in three-point field goal percentage versus the average opponent. That's that from Haslametrics. They are second in near proximity field goal percentage. And because they're so good at those two things, it's really refreshing to see a team that ranks 239th in mid-range field goal attempt rate. Like, I love to see that because there are some really talented teams in college basketball that don't do that. And we're going to talk about a couple of them on this podcast. So love that they're 34th in rim and three rate if you look at that stat over at Shot Quality. St. Bonaventure is only 232nd. I thought they were very fortunate to get out of that VCU game with a win after having a 13-point halftime deficit. So, And if you look at St. Bonaventure, in A-10 play, they're number 11 in their own conference in effective field goal percentage defense. So I've been watching Dayton and the way books are lining them in recent weeks and versus what the Haslametrics number has been, the books have been a little bit short on them. I wonder if that might happen again here. And if that's the case, then I'm probably going to bet on Dayton. If it's going to be closer to, you know, nine or 10, then I will wait for a live opportunity early in the game if they happen to get off to a slow start. But yeah, this is a, this is a really smart offensive team, in my opinion, Eli and Dayton, that is going to have a pretty decent shot here to, to win by double digits, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a good look, maybe on the live number. The yeah. one thing I like about St. Bonaventure, though, is, and to your point, have struggled a little bit defensively. I mentioned their offensive issues at times, but still veteran laden team that seemingly is starting to come together. You have Micah Adams Woods, who I think was, I don't know if it was necessarily called the suspension, but he missed one of their losses in the last week, came back strong. So I think the Bonnies may be starting to come together in a positive sense at the right time here, but I don't mind your live look. Yeah, the the final note I'll say about St. Bonaventure, I was looking for something to hang my hat on if I want to take the points with them. And overall on the season, it would appear that they would potentially have an opportunity on the offensive glass and generating second chance opportunities. But if you look at just conference play, that number has come way down versus tougher competition where they're now only fifth in the A-10 in offensive rebounding percentage. Uh, so I I can't even rely on that. I don't think I'm confident in that as well in this matchup. So, yeah, I'd, I'd only look Dayton this time around. We mentioned there's three games between top 10 teams this weekend. But before we get to those, let's start with the number one team in the land on Saturday, Eli. The UConn Huskies go on the road, sort of, to Madison Square Garden <laughs> on St. John's. As a Syracuse alum, I'm well aware of how much UConn fans pack MSG on any given night when the Huskies are in there. So uh, 12 o'clock noon tip-off Eastern time on Fox. 
So you mentioned, or I mentioned that UConn is number one in the AP poll. You have them at number three in your power rankings. St. John's still unranked, but you have them 19th. You shared in the Discord this week a Final Four futures bet on St. John's and Rick Pitino at 22 to 1. For this particular game, Haslametrics makes UConn around a three and a half point road favorite here, over under of 145. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you betting UConn or you betting St. John's to be a Final Four team at a good number before this game happened means that you're pretty confident in their chances of keeping this close and maybe springing an upset. Yeah, they're going to have to. And it's not like their NCAA tournament hopes are on the line, but this is a pretty critical game. You have two matchups in DePaul and Georgetown. So four overall between two of the worst teams in not only the Big East, but among Power 6, Power 7 conferences in college basketball. So it's not like St. John's has the most arduous schedule here down the stretch in conference play, but still a pretty critical game. And I make this closer to UConn minus two, believe it or not. So just kind of setting the scene here, the Huskies won over Providence. Closer game than it may have appeared, even though the spread was around 13 and a half just because Providence missed a ton of free throws, I think, in the double-digit range. And then St. John's, that game was probably closer than it may have seemed like when you look at the final box score just because it was around a one-possession game with two, three minutes to go. And Xavier got some bounces and offensive rebound, which led to an Ovalari three. And basketball gods kind of on their side after losing by 40-plus to the Huskies. So that's kind of the way it swings sometimes in college basketball. I'm still very high on this St. John's team. And to your point, I have a Final Four future on the Johnnies. I wrote that up. You can read the breakdown over at thelines.com. Just some cliff notes, though. Rick Pitino's first year in Queens, obviously, started 7-3 and in non-conference play. You lose three straight games over the last two, three weeks in conference play, but two by one possession and a BS call. I'll keep it on the more PG side of things for our listeners. Yeah, and viewers. Sure, yes, exactly. And that loss at Creighton, I thought Diggle got fouled on an offensive rebound, turned last second shot in the mid range. I know you're not a huge fan of mid range shots, but should have gotten to the line as a result. But St. John's is starting to come together even with that loss at Xavier at the right time. And keep in mind, this is a team that lacked zero minutes continuity coming into the year. Bottom 30 overall in college basketball. Maybe zero was a bit of a, an exaggeration. And a top 15 schedule when it comes to strength of schedule so far this season. But veteran-laden team, kind of similar to St. Bonaventure in that sense, but more so. And also went through a COVID stretch over the last week. Two weeks with Dingle having it, missing the Marquette loss and Villanova win. And Patino also dealing with COVID during that Seton Hall loss. Didn't coach in that game. So a lot has gone against St. John's. So that's why I kind of saw this as a buy low opportunity. And you also couple that with this defense really starting to implement that matchup zone. It morphs into a man in the half court and they press uh, their press ranks in the 98th percentile per synergy. Not that UConn won't be able to deal with that press just because even though they rank bottom in the bottom half of the Big East Conference in turnover percentage, they haven't necessarily turned the ball over a ton, had a lot of miscues against turnover forcing havoc 
Led defenses. But the one area I think St. John's will be able to have an advantage is on the offensive glass, whether it was UConn's first game against St. John's, when keep in mind the Johnnies easily could have won that game if not for a defensive rebound that led to an offensive rebound for the Huskies in the final two, three minutes. The Georgetown game and both Xavier games for UConn, despite one of those being a blowout, they have allowed double digit offensive rebounds and then some in all of those games. Like I said, I'm high on the Red Storm. And guard play has been elite for this team, despite the results with Denise Jenkins and Dingle, who I mentioned. So if St. John's can control the glass and generate those second chance shots, I think they win this game outright. That's exactly where I saw a potential opportunity for St. John's to win this game outright too, Eli. I'm glad you brought it up just to put some more numbers on it. UConn is eighth in Big East play and offensive rebound percentage allowed. And it's not just that St. John's generates offensive rebounds. It's that they convert them too when they get them. They're number one in the country in second chance conversion percentage. If you look at that stat over at Haslametric. So well taken point there by you. The other side of this too is that, you know, UConn is a really good outside shooting team. They're number one in Big East play and three point field goal percentage. But St. John's is number one in defending threes. In conference play. So they are well equipped to take away an offensive strength that UConn presents in this game. Now, obviously, there's still going to be some concerns for the Johnnies here. And for me, it's it's ironically as good as they are at generating offensive rebounds when they have possession. For whatever reason, they're poor at allowing offensive rebounds. They're 288th in that category. And UConn is top 15 in the country in offensive rebound percentage. So it's just, it's a weird split that way. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me why you'd be really good in that area at one end, but poor at the other. It's almost like a lack of discipline. And also, I, you know, you know, I'm always going to hate when a team like UConn, who ranks top 40 in rim and three rate, is playing a team like St. John's, who's 323rd in rim and three rate. So if you're going to have that low of a, of a rim and three rate, it's almost like you better get on the offensive glass if you're going to try and contend with this. So uh, I think there's enough here. I agree with you. Just final conclusion for me. I think there is enough here for St. John's to keep this close. I'm going to wait. You never know how these spreads are going to move when they come out. There's been just a ton of love on home teams in conference play. You know, even if there's a big number next to that team, uh, like UConn with their ranking. So it wouldn't surprise me if the early money comes in on St. John's here and we actually get a worse line than, than plus three and a half here. So uh, you may have to get this at open and just keep an eye on it. But I, I I'm with you. I think it would probably be St. John's or nothing, at least in this spot. The first of three top 10 matchups on Saturday takes place at four o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. Number four, Houston at number eight, Kansas. Eli, you have the rankings as Houston second in the nation and Kansas. You agree with the AP poll. You have them at eighth. Houston would be a four and a half point road favorite if Haslametrics was making the spread over under of 131 and a half, quite low for this season in college basketball. I have a couple of things that stand out to me in this game, Eli, but I want to start with you and and just, you know, what an awesome matchup we have here in the Big 12 and what is just a gauntlet bloodbath of a conference play season in the Big 12. So you brought up a crazy, crazy betting market last week to me. I don't have a betting market for you here on Outside Shots that rivals that, but I have a stat or a record that kind of contends with it. All right. Bill Self, when Kansas is the lower ranked team in the AP Top 25 at home, 
which is the case with Houston and Kansas, or it's going to be this Saturday, 8-0 and at home at Allen Fieldhouse, which doesn't, probably when you digest it, maybe on the surface it's a little bit surprising, but when you digest it, okay, that's one of the best home court advantages in college basketball, and Bill Self and this Kansas team play to that and then some, every time they play at home, it seems like, especially when the game has a ton of stakes on the line. So they're elite when it comes to facing some of the best competition in college basketball at Allen Fieldhouse at the Fog. But to me, this is going to come down to pace. Houston ranks number 351 in adjusted tempo. Jamal Shedd has been the trigger by all means, for this Cougars team at both ends of the floor, 12.3 points per game, 7th highest assist rate in the country, 17th highest steal rate in college basketball, an elite defense, number one adjusted defensive efficiency. And on the flip side of that, you have a Kansas team that wants to play up tempo, wants to beat you in transition, number one in the Big 12 in adjusted pace. And I mentioned Shed's offensive game, second on the team in points per game to LJ Cryer, the Baylor transfer, but... Per CBB Analytics, Sheds 16.4 field goal attempts in this five-game stretch for the Cougars, last five games, ranks in the 99th percentile nationally. So he has really upped his game or increased his shot volume in Big 12 play. Conversely, you have Kevin McCuller, one of the best well-rounded players in the country. So not like those two are going head-to-head, but really, really good matchup when it comes to the battle of pace and tempo, and then just star power also and defense and offense. Uh, The Cougars have an elite transition defense to that point. Like I mentioned, Jayhawks want to push the floor, but the Cougars rank in the 97th percentile when it comes to their transition defense. I mentioned the Bill Self stats, so maybe they can combat that with this crowd getting into it and being able to leak out and generate some extra second chance shots and being able to push the floor maybe a little bit more than Houston Would like the other thing with Houston that I mentioned on last week's episode, they take a lot of difficult shots. 10th in the Big 12 when it comes to effective field goal percentage. So, not the most consistent shooting team, whether it's in the mid range, I know you hate mid range shots, or from behind the arc. So, I kind of see maybe a look towards the under, or maybe just a live look with the total, depending on whether Kansas is controlling the tempo or if it's Houston. So, I want to start with Houston's defense because it's historic right now. Like this is the reason why they are considered an elite team in college basketball this year, despite this being their first year in in the big 12 right now. If you look at their adjusted defensive efficiency over at Ken Palm, Eli, can you tell me the last team that had an adjusted efficiency as good as Houston's right now? Maybe another Catlin Sampson Houston team. No, I'll I'll get (laughs) All right, so this is bad radio, but it's a team that you loved. It was the Texas Tech Final Four team in 2019 with Chris Beard. That's how good this Houston defense has been. It is even slightly better than the Rick Pitino Louisville team that won the national championship back in 2013, which was just a havoc pressing team with Peyton Siva and Russ Smith. So that's a starting point. I will say, I think I've tried to erase Chris Beard from my memory. Can I can I use that to my defense? Yeah, for for several good reasons, might I add. All right, so so that's that's why Houston is never out of a game, right? That's why they're as rated as high as they are. But I also just want to mention that these two teams and the way they play offense drive me nuts. 
It makes no sense. I think it's dumb the way they select their shots. Let's start with Houston. They have a top 60 three-point percentage this season against the average opponent, yet their three-point attempt rate is outside the top 100. They rank 285th in the country in mid-range shooting percentage, yet they're taking the sixth most mid-range shots in the country this year. They rank 22nd in the nation in near-proximity field goal percentage. Really good, right? Except they're they're attempting the 281st most near proximity field goal attempts. They're running their offense stupidly. And Kansas on the other side isn't much better. Kansas ranks 33rd in the country in three-point percentage against the average opponent. And yet their three-point attempt rate is 336th, Eli. What are we doing here? They're fourth in near proximity field goal percentage. Makes sense, right? You got Hunter Dixon, Dickinson. They're 110th in near proximity field goal or attempt rate. Like it, it's, it's mind boggling how stupid the shot selection is of both of these teams, which is why you have a projected over under in the one thirties here in one of the most historic offensive seasons we've seen in college basketball. So I can't trust any, either of these offenses to have like a ceiling game, to be honest with you. And I think it's a reason why I might be looking for the opportunity to pick them as an upset once we get down the road here. But at least in this particular matchup, I agree with most of what you said about Kansas maybe be, being able to pull an upset here. And the biggest thing for me might be just the size advantage that I think Kansas has in this game. Kansas is a top 10 team in average height and Houston is 331st. If you look at Houston's roster, I mean, 6'2", in terms of the guys that are getting the most usage here. They don't have anybody on the roster bigger than 6'8". Like, everybody on the roster for Kansas is 6'7 or higher. And even with Kansas's like, bench minutes situation, that's still an issue for me in this game, is the size advantage that Kansas has. The one area I'll use to combat it, and granted, I don't have a stat to throw at you. By the way, I think you may need to talk to a therapist about your concerns with Kansas and Houston because you seem a little upset. And some of it's warranted. I'll give you that. Houston, sixth-ranked offensive rebounding percentage in college basketball. So the size doesn't compute with the offensive rebounding rate. But we've seen this year over year. Over a year, over a year. That's why I thought it was going to be a Calvin Sampson defense because not only does he get his teams to play above expectation at that end of the floor, they crash the glass, man. It's ridiculous. Whether it was, I tweeted this out earlier in the week, Fabian White, Chris Harris, Justin Gorham, Reggie Chaney, Josh Carlton, Juwan Roberts, Javier Francis, and now the freshman Joseph Tugler, who had some huge offensive rebounds against Texas on Monday night in that overtime re- uh, win. Granted, Houston didn't cover, but those aren't seven-foot bigs. We're talking six, seven, six, eight, And man, do they generate second-chance shots. So I'm sorry to say that you may be screaming at the TV a little bit more when it comes to this matchup on Saturday. Yeah, I... I just don't understand why a team would be so good at the most efficient ways to play basketball and spend the majority of their time shooting the ball in the most inefficient way possible. And both of these teams are that way. And I, your, your point is well taken. Clearly, Houston has always been a really good offensive rebounding team. But I did go and look at the opponents that they faced in Big 12 play. 
And for the most part, it hasn't mattered, right? They're the class of the conference this year. But the, the games where they've at least struggled a little bit have been a couple of the teams that are in the upper third of Division One in average height, like BYU. So I am curious if they are as successful offensive rebounding in this game against Houston, who has pretty much a size advantage in every matchup in this game. It's going to be a fascinating one. I, I'm I'm on that trend, I think, with Kansas. Um, I think not not so much because of the trend, but I do like the matchup here for Kansas to at least cover more than a possession. So I'll be interested in the Jayhawks there. Duke versus UNC, what many would call the best rivalry in college basketball. I won't start that fight or debate here, but it is a Saturday, <laughs> 6.30 p.m. Eastern time tip off on ESPN. Number seven, Duke. Number three, UNC in the AP poll. Eli, you have Duke number 10 and UNC number six. Haslametrics would make this spread just a little bit more than six points for UNC with a over-under of 152. What catches your eye in this latest edition of this great rivalry? Yeah. And finally, we have, well, I could, shouldn't say finally, but at least this year, we have it as a top 10, top 15 matchup, depending on where maybe you, the viewer or listener, has Duke and UNC power rated, or at least in your maybe mind with college basketball rankings. But I make this closer to around UNC minus five, maybe a tick under five and a half. So I'm a little lower than the Haslametric spread, but good bounce back spot for the Tar Heels for sure. I will say Georgia Tech, and Florida State both exposed UNC's perimeter defense to the point that I brought up on these last couple outside shots episodes. Georgia Tech, Yellow Jacket shooting 9-20 from 3 in that upset win over UNC as a 7.5, 8-point home underdog. And that was really the difference because when you go back to UNC's first nine games in the new year, allowing opponents to shoot, ACC opponents to shoot 22.5% from 3. So Florida State and Georgia Tech have both kind of forced that negative regression for UNC's perimeter defense that I thought was coming. Duke is shooting 40.3% from deep, despite their below average, league average, I should say, three-point attempt rate. And Jared McCain, even though he didn't shoot that well against Vatek in that win over the Hokies, a lot of betters, by the way, thought that was going to be a road upset, a loss in terms of Duke. But McCain didn't shoot well, didn't really matter in that game, but his three-point efficiency has really propelled Duke's offense of late. So has Tyrese Proctor's, though. When you look at the way he's played over the last five games, 16.4 points per game while shooting just below 50% from three. So is Duke going to hit outside shots? Are they going to take enough outside shots to really exploit UNC's defense on top of the fact that Armando Baycott continues to get pinned in some of these isolation situations against guard like we saw on Georgia Tech's eventual game-winning shot in the final minute against the Tar Heels on Tuesday night. Now, I will say for UNC on the plus matchup side of things, one of the best offensive rebounding teams, not maybe on the same level as Houston, but number one in offensive rebounding percentage in ACC play. Duke isn't elite Kind of to the point that you brought up with Houston when you look at some of their strength of schedule metrics. I know they're fourth in defensive rebounding rate in ACC play, but Filipowski is the biggest big on the floor. Decent post defender, but it's not like this Duke team has a ton of size and aggressive rebounders like Houston or maybe St. John's has with Joel Soriano. So that's the one area of concern I have with Duke is can they clean up 
the defensive glass enough against Baycott and these hyper-aggressive UNC offensive rebounders? I would be surprised come tip-off Saturday if I don't have a, a bet on Duke in this game, taking the points. And again, if I do, lines.com, top right corner, free Discord channel. I'll pop it in there in the Staff Basketball Bets server. Just on service level, Eli, in, in conference play, I have one team here that ranks number two in the ACC in effective field goal percentage, and the other ranks 11th in effective field goal percentage. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that it's Duke that is higher there than North Carolina. I agree with you. I think they've been relying on three-point defense. I think Duke, you know, we I just went on a rant about Houston and Kansas. I think Duke is fairly smart about the type of shots that they take. They are first in the nation in three-point percentage against the average opponent. They are top 65 in near proximity field goal percentage against the average opponent. And yet they rank 253rd in mid-range attempt rate. Love that. Love that shot selection from Duke. It's a reason why they're, you know, a lot of them considered one of the best academic schools in the country. Even their basketball team plays smart offense. You love to see. Don't do this. Don't do this. Yeah, I don't. I don't usually hate Duke, but if I'm gonna put money on him, I'm gonna like Duke that day. Let's let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, I went to Syracuse. We've had plenty of uh, you know Bayheim meltdowns and Cameron Indoor over the years. So that's fair. On the on the other side here with North Carolina, I shouldn't this offense be better? I don't I don't get it. Like I look at these numbers and I kind of scratch my head and say like this is a top three team in the country. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me. They are. You know, 72nd and three-point percentage, that's pretty decent. They are 111th in mid-range, 165th in near proximity. But, you know, their rim and three rate is 251st in the country. They're a pretty efficient team. They have a lot of talented players. R.J. Davis is great. Just, I I don't know, Eli. It doesn't, I, what I see with my eyes and what I watch looks better than the numbers I see on these on these advanced metric sites. And it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. And what I see on sites like Haslametrics makes me think maybe Duke is the team with the higher ceiling once we get to March here. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I, I'm having trouble squaring my eyes and what the numbers say here. I don't blame you. And Georgia Tech didn't or doesn't run the kind of zone, matchup zone press that we saw under Josh Pastner during his tenure with the Yellow Jackets, but they threw some zone at UNC and UNC didn't react well, especially when they got in foul trouble. Now, RJ Davis can negate that on his own with the way and the level he's playing at offensively. But yeah, I I'm kind of with you. And that's that was to my point earlier. If Duke throws zone at UNC and if UNC's offense is therefore inefficient, will they produce enough offensive rebounds? So that's, we both kind of agree that's the conclusion for the Tar Heels if they struggle offensively in the half court again. Third and final matchup of top 10 teams on Saturday. Number five, Tennessee goes to Rupp Arena in Lexington to take on number 10, Kentucky, Saturday, 8 p.m. tip-off on ESPN. Literally, just turn on ESPN on at 4 o'clock and watch three straight top 10 matchups. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Eli, you have Tennessee fourth in the country versus five for the AP. You have Kentucky 11th versus 10 for the AP, so pretty close here. Game almost to pick them. Haslametrics has Tennessee minus one over under of 159 in this. Which is it a bounce back spot for? Because they're both coming off losses. Yeah, it's a great point. And you go back to last year, maybe a little bit of revenge for Tennessee just because Kentucky swept their regular season series 
in the 2022-2023 season. Huge injuries, though. I mean huge to monitor for this game because I thought Kentucky was playing it safe against Florida, and maybe they shouldn't have because they lost in overtime, and I don't know why. You want to get out of your soapbox and rant about inefficient offenses and mid-range jump shots? Why isn't Cal fouling down or up three in the final 10 seconds against Florida? What? I'm going to keep it clean again. (laughs) <laughs> what are you doing, John Calipari? But the injuries, I won't rant for too long. DJ Wagner, ankle injury. Justin Edwards, leg injury. Both didn't play against Florida. Cal did not seem super op- optimistic for their status in this Tennessee game, or at least he kind of alluded to the fact that Kentucky won't be at full strength. So you have to monitor those players for this game. And keep in mind, I make this game around a pick when these two teams are fully healthy. So if Kentucky isn't at full strength, the market will take that into account, and I will as well. But Kentucky's defense, I brought this up with not only UNC and maybe their fraudulency at that end of the floor, but Kentucky, I mean, it's there for you. You could see it at eye level with how poor this team is at the defensive end of the floor. Since December 16th, when they got Bradshaw and Anyenso back, and keep in mind, Anyenso in the starting lineup, eight blocks against Florida. So Huge, huge, huge impact when he's on the floor in terms of his rim protection. But still, since mid-December, Kentucky 96th in adjusted defensive efficiency. They played an Arkansas team last Saturday that some might have called a get-right spot for Kentucky's defense. Well, Arkansas playing in simple sucks besides the fact that they put up 90-plus points against Missouri last night, who also sucks in league play of the SEC. So I'm not taking too much out of Kentucky's defensive performance last week, even though, like I mentioned, Onyenso in the starting lineup and Aduthiero back at full strength benefits them at that end of the floor. Tennessee lost as a double-digit favorite, like you alluded to, against South Carolina on Tuesday. But the one area of concern I have that kind of relates back to Tennessee last year in both of those losses, Tennessee ranks in the 19th percentile in transition defense. If Kentucky is at full strength or close to at full strength, that's where Kentucky excels. Now, I know they've been lackadaisical defensively, And I can't tell you how many times we saw Kentucky just leave open shooters because maybe some of their freshmen just haven't been in those kind of spots like Reed Shepard three or four times against Florida, just leaving open guys from deep. But if Kentucky could push the pace like I brought up with Kansas and get those plus matchups, three on two, four on two matchups in transition, that's where Dillingham and this elite Kentucky offense is going to have an edge. You've made excellent points, and a lot of it mirrors the notes I have for this game, so I won't go into further detail on that. I I lean Tennessee here in this spot. Um, I'll just give a player prop that I'm eyeing and hat tip to one of our Discord members who's been pointing this out. It is Dalton Connect going into last game, taking 36.5% of Tennessee's shots and averaging 28 in conference play per game in terms of points per game. Then on Tuesday, he took 41% of Tennessee's shots. It's wild. If you look at the total points he's put up, working backwards, 31, 32, 25, 39, 36, 28. And sportsbooks recently have only been hanging in over under of 21 and a half. So I'll be looking for that prop for Tennessee and Dalton Connect in Rupp Arena on Saturday. 
Uh, West Coast Conference hoops after dark. St. Mary's at Gonzaga. Kind of weird to not see a number next to either of these teams, but neither is ranked in the top 25 of the AP poll right now. 10.30 p.m. Eastern time tip-off on ESPN, as I like to say. Not East Coast dad-friendly. Eli, you do have St. Mary's ranked in your top 25 at number 24. You do not have Gonzaga ranked at the moment. I'm kind of curious where this spread is going to kind of land, um, but I am also curious where you think this matchup is going to be in your mind because I might take St. Mary's here after they burned me a decent amount in the non-conference. So uh, after you kind of give your your breakdown here, I'll give you the projected spread in total over at Haslametrics. Yeah, I make it closer to Gonzaga minus two, so I'm not surprised that you like St. Mary's and they're playing to the preseason expectation that maybe you were betting them to in non-conference play. 10th ranked adjusted defensive efficiency since mid-December. Augustus Marshallonis has really, really come on as the Robin to maybe Mahaney's Batman. He has been consistent over the last couple of games scoring-wise, which is what you weren't getting from him in non-conference play, and which is kind of why they were struggling on top of their defensive issues, which never happens typically under a Randy Bennett-led team. The question is for Gonzaga. Similar to Kansas, similar to Kentucky. Can you leak out in transition? Because St. Mary's allows the lowest assist-to-field goal ratio in West Coast Conference play. Gonzaga thrives off of getting to the rim. And with that said, conversely, in the half court, they rank in the first percentile. First percentile that's bad for those of you who don't know the difference between 99th and first percentile (laughs) that's that's the bottom (laughs) right that's the bottom in isolation scoring so if Gonzaga is forced into the half court and they can't leak out in transition get those fast break opportunities St. Mary should win this game but obvious home court advantage at the kennel which is why I have my hesitation to maybe back St. Mary's in a good home spot for Gonzaga, despite those issues in the half court for the Zags. And the other thing that I want to bring up here, similar to Duke and Brandon Marks may bring up this point too with UNC Duke as well. I brought this up with UNC Georgia Tech. Gonzaga did a great job of throwing some full court pressure against St. Mary's last year and some zone looks for that matter. Will that be an issue for St. Mary's offense in the half court, even though they've been much better against lower tier competition so far in WCC play? So a lot of different angles, which I think we're going to get a great game, but it makes me steer away from it from a betting standpoint. Haslametrics makes the spread Gonzaga minus six, Ken Palm at five, over under in this one for Haslametrics around 136. If I'm getting two possessions, a full two possessions on St. Mary's, it's going to be hard for me not to bet the Gales here, Eli. Gonzaga does not attempt a lot of three-pointers. They are 258th in three-point field goal attempt rate. Top 15 in mid-range and near-proximity field goal percentage. And I think St. Mary's actually matches up well in that regard this year against Gonzaga. St. Mary's is 38th and 6th in mid-range and near-proximity field goal percentage defense. And furthermore... Everything Gonzaga basically does well in this version of the Zags offensively, St. Mary's seems well-equipped to defend. They are first, the the Zags that is, offensively, first in effective field goal percentage, turnover percentage, two-point field goal percentage in conference play. St. Mary's top two defensively in all those categories. 
Meanwhile, for St. Mary's offense, fifth in the nation offensive rebounding percentage, number one in West Coast Conference play. St. Mary's three-point field goal shooting has also vastly improved from the non-conference schedule where they took a lot of my money. They were 241st in D1 on the season in three-point field goal shooting. So not good at all if you look at the full body of their work. But number one in conference play in three-point field goal shooting. So this has been a different team once we've turned the calendar year here. And overall, rim and three rate, you know I love the stat. St. Mary's 23rd in the nation, Gonzaga only 219th. So even though this game is in Spokane... I think six would be too many for for this version of St. Mary's, Eli. I still think too much of the non-conference performances from St. Mary's is being baked into the market at the moment. No, that's a good point. So if you get Marshall Onis hitting threes and Mahaney just attacking this Gonzaga pick-and-roll defense nonstop like he did last year, and even though EK provides a little bit more rim protection than what the Zags had a year ago, still not an elite rim defense by any stretch. So I don't blame you for taking two possessions here. One more game to get to before we get to our fantastic guest. On Sunday, 1 o'clock Eastern time, tip-off. This one on CBS. Number two, Purdue at number six, Wisconsin. Purdue, number one in Eli's rankings. Wisconsin, only 18. Haslametrics makes the spread Purdue minus four over under of 148. 148. Disclaimer, Wisconsin does play Thursday. We are recording this podcast on Thursday, so we don't know the outcome of that game. Uh, But Eli, you at least had a couple of thoughts here on this matchup because it is such a big game on Sunday. Yeah, three key points for me. Wisconsin, can they defend Zach Eady? I know Eady missed a ton of free throws against Northwestern, but he easily could have had 40 points. Now, on the flip side of that, you could say, well, is Northwestern or did Northwestern get maybe the worst end of the stick when it came to some of those foul calls? Because I know the having and hawing over, is it a foul on Zach Eady or should it be a foul uh, against Zach Eady is the question. But either way, Wisconsin allowing 0.85 points per possession on post-up touches. That's about average, especially in conference play. And Northwestern, keep in mind, had one of the better post-up defenses in the country, and Edie still exploited them, despite some of those questionable foul calls, depending on how you want to look at it. So I don't think Wisconsin matches up well down low. Now, I will say, when it comes to the point spread, oddsmakers are going to shade towards Wisconsin just because Big Ten home teams have been elite. But at the same time, this Wisconsin defense, it can't really exploit Purdue in the way that is the biggest liability for the Boilermakers at that end of the floor. Braden Smith had a great game against Northwestern. I'm not taking anything away from him. I think double-digit assists, maybe close to 16. But Purdue with a below-league-average turnover clip in Big Ten play, and Wisconsin doesn't pressure the ball, doesn't try to force turnovers. So I've I'm kind of in the camp that Wisconsin may be a little overrated when it comes to some power ratings, even though I think they're top 15. I'm not saying top 10, top five. So there may be a little bit of value here on Purdue, but keep in mind if, because like you said, we're recording this before the Thursday game. If Wisconsin loses at Nebraska, that's going to be a motivational edge for the Badgers. It's an awesome weekend of college hoops. Let's get to our special guest. Now it's time to be joined by Brandon Marks. You can follow him on Twitter, on X, Brandon Marks, 
R. So Brandon R. Marks. And Brandon, unlike my little stutter stuff there with your axe handle, this is a great weekend of college basketball, and hopefully it doesn't disappoint. You cover college basketball and do it well for the athletic and a huge matchup at the Dean Dome this coming weekend with Duke UNC. Before we get into the matchups, man, where does this rank for you in sports when it comes to rivalries? Yeah, it's it's at least top three and it's not three um you know to me i put it right up there with like red sox yankees lakers celtics auburn bama like in in the college space i think it's the best rivalry there is for sure um i'm biased but these games always deliver the stats about how close it is historically are insane like there's no other there's no other rivalry that that you know matches up in that sense and both of these teams to your point in the sense are red hot as well duke has won 11 of its last 12 games in UNC besides its flub at Georgia Tech, depending on how you grade that game, and we'll get into that in a bit, has been red hot as well in ACC play. But want to start off with Tyrese Proctor, just because he seems to be healthy after dealing with that ankle concern at the back end of non-conference play and is scorching hot from three over these past five games. But what do you think the biggest difference is with Proctor's game, whether it's offensively, defensively, or both, just because he really became and stepped into that floor general role when Duke took another step late last season? Yeah, I think probably the most consequential decision that John Shire made his first year as a head coach was moving Tyrese Proctor to point guard midway through the season and shifting Jeremy Roach, who was this, you know, experienced senior cap or junior captain and moved him more off ball. And that is really what allowed Duke's offense to take off. It allowed Proctor to really take off as well. Um, I think he's one of the better pick and roll guards in the country. And so you mentioned the injury in the last five games, he's finally started to look more like the guy we saw towards the end of last season. Uh, when Duke lost to Tennessee in the NCAA tournament, Tyrese Proctor was basically the only guy capable of scoring against Tennessee's defense. Um, and we're finally starting to see him get back to that. He's, you know, shooting like 48% from three the last five games, averaging almost 17 points a game, has just been a, a completely different player than he was before the injury. And I think defensively too, and especially before this UNC game, he's going to be matched up on RJ Davis a lot and has mentioned how the injury sapped him of some of his change of direction, some of his lateral quickness. So he's back to being one of Duke's better point of attack defenders at the same time. As for UNC, Brandon, they're coming off an upset loss to Georgia Tech on Tuesday. I have harped a little bit about shot selection for this offense and not taking more efficient shots. So just generally speaking, is that loss to Georgia Tech more of just a blip on the radar in your opinion or were there real concerns coming out of that game? Yeah, I, I share your concern about the shot selection. I don't know that UNC always uh, feeds the post probably as strongly as it needs to. I don't know that Armando Baycott has been as aggressive as he needs to in calling for the ball either. Um, he's coming off three straight single-digit scoring games, which hasn't happened since his freshman year. Kind of crazy mm -hmm. to believe. That was like 90 years ago. Um, and, you know, in terms of is this a blip, is this something that you'd be concerned about? At the end of the day, UNC had its worst shooting performance of the season, had one of its worst nights at the free throw line of the season, and lost by one point on the road and, you know, didn't get a foul that I thought there was contact on. So, um, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. I also think Georgia Tech is a little bit better than people give them credit for, but certainly UNC, 
you know, the, the change has been on the defensive side of the ball. This is a top five defense in the country. They've been one of the best defenses, you know, especially since Christmas time. They've been excellent. Offensively, they do have to get back into more of a rhythm. RJ Davis can't just put on Superman's cape every single game. He needs a little bit more help. So that's what I'm looking for moving forward. And I think Georgia Tech can be a wake up call. And at the defensive end for Duke, I know you were just harping on UNC's defense, but Duke doesn't have that rim protector that we saw last year in Derek Lively that gave Armando Baycott some issues. And Duke sweeping the regular season series going back to last year, like Stephen and I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Filipowski, when I was looking at Synergy, his post defense is actually much better than I would have anticipated. Like you mentioned, Baycott maybe hasn't struggled offensively over the last three games, but hasn't demanded the ball or UNC hasn't gotten him the ball to the extent that they should be. How do you see this matchup playing out between Baycott and Filipowski? Yeah, you know, I, I think honestly that Duke is probably going to take a page out of its playbook from the Paolo Bancaro season, and they're going to go straight at Armando Baycott, and they're going to try and get him on the bench. You know, both of these teams – you know, as much offensive firepower as they have in the backcourt, I wouldn't say that either one of them is tremendously deep in the front court. Um, you know, for North Carolina, Jalen Washington has certainly come on this season. He's been a lot better, former, you know, top 25, top 30 recruit, but he's not a guy who can really play more than 15 or so minutes a game. And then for Duke, um, you know, they've been playing Kyle Filipowski much more at center this season, as you mentioned. No Derek Lively. Like you don't have that rim protection. Filipowski has a negative wingspan. Like those are just the facts. And so, They've done some nice things in terms of doubling. I think Mark Mitchell for Duke is going to be huge defensively too. He's going to end up getting some opportunities against Baycott as well. But to me, this is going to be a foul situation. Whoever gets in trouble early is going to be sitting. Whoever doesn't is going to be able to give their team an advantage. But I'm expecting both teams basically. We're going to have some early whistles. Let me put it that way. <laughs> All right. Now let's try to piss off half of the people that read you since you cover both of these teams because we're going to put your feet <laughs> to the fire here with a with a prediction for Duke UNC it's a we're a betting show we make predictions we try to win most of them uh our projection sites that we follow out there make UNC about a six point favorite in this game so when you look at this matchup do you agree that it's more likely that UNC wins this game by three possessions or more or are we looking at a, a tight matchup in this rendition I would be shocked if it was that wide a spread. Um, six and a half points feels like free money to me. Um, that, that is, <laughs> that is, <laughs> now, just wait till I'm wrong and piss even more I, just, people just off. So you know, Brandon, the words free money generally in our neck of the woods is like the kiss of death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so the, here, here's sort of where I, I've come around on the rival on this first iteration. I believe that North Carolina is the better team. I think North Carolina is the best team in the ACC. I think it's a legitimate Final Four contender. I think that defense is capable of giving Duke problems, especially because Duke does not have it, – it, Duke's margin for error is very thin. It needs all of its guys in the backcourt to all be hitting, all be shooting threes to be really successful. However, this rivalry always is close. You know, Historically, there's like whatever, a two-point difference all time. And also, I do think that Tyrese Proctor's impact these last couple of games can't be can't be minimized. He is probably the guy who has the highest ceiling in Duke's entire backcourt. More than Jeremy Roach, who's consistent. More than Jared McCain, who's a great shooter. Tyrese Proctor is the guy who can really lift the boat. And so it's at home. All of the numbers say that UNC should win. I think UNC is the better team, which means that I'm actually going to pick Duke to win. I think it'll be a big upset. I think Duke probably gets uh, you know its first real marquee win since the Baylor game. 
Yeah, you just pissed off, like Steven said, half of your readership. <laughs> but with that said, they will all be reading, of course, at The Athletic for the rest of the season, no matter what. But going nationally here, Brandon, and looking at, I've kind of heard the opinion over the last three weeks to a month that the ACC is underrated. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I've also heard that the Big 12 is overrated. And you and Kyle Tucker kind of bounced back and forth about this, and you also tweeted about it earlier in the week or asked about it. If Elon Musk wants to call it that, who knows? What do you make of the conference power ratings and specifically digging into the Big 12 just because it's been such a topic of interest? Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring this up. Uh, I was UNC's athletic director, Bubba Cunningham, is not only on the selection committee, but he's, you know, the Big 12 is his committee. That's his conference that he's responsible for watching. And so he and I have had some, you know, casual conversations about this because we're both watching a lot of Big 12 basketball this year. And I do think the Big 12 is top to bottom. It probably has the best top to bottom league in the country. I don't think that that's really up for debate. Like you look at the bottom of, the Big Ten, the bottom of the SEC, the bottom, the bottom of the ACC and the Pac-12 is like Halloween scary. Like, don't go anywhere near that. Um, however, however, I knew we were going to talk about this. And so I was looking into the numbers a little bit more. And it is shocking just how poor some of those Big 12 non-conferences have really panned out. Um, as far as I can tell, 10 Big 12 teams out of the 14, they've got sub 250 ranked non-conference schedules on Kempom. Only four of them are in the top 250 nationally, and only one of those, Kansas, in the top 100. And, like, there are some marquee wins there. You know, Kansas has Kentucky. They've got Tennessee. They've got UConn. But, like, Houston even. Beat Utah. That's a nice win. Beat Dayton. Those are two tournament teams. But, like, it's not a nationally, you know, landscape-defining win. And so I do think that, to some extent, this is a sentiment I've heard from, you know, from Bubba, from a lot of coaches, a lot of ACC coaches especially, that the Big 12 has kind of gamed the net system to where they don't necessarily challenge themselves incredibly hard in the non-conference, and then they just beat up on each other in league play. So I think it's the best league in the country, but do I think that it's being put on a little bit more of a pedestal than it probably deserves? Yeah, I do. Final one, Brandon. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the new hotness in college basketball right now. South Carolina is playing really well lately. They get the big double-digit upset over Tennessee – maybe a letdown spot against Georgia on Saturday. Just your overall thoughts on, on where you slot the Gamecocks in among the SEC now, which with a team that still only has a few losses overall this season. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, just personally, I love watching BJ Mack play. Um, like those are like my kind of dudes. Like, you know, you're not, you're not even six ten, and you're like almost 275 pounds. I love that. Um, you know, DJ Burns at NC State, Kennedy Meeks at UNC a few years ago, Dane Danger. I love those guys. Um, <laughs> but in terms of where I slot the Gamecocks, I mean, I, I think, I think Tennessee is by far the best team in the SEC. I don't think it's really close. Um, I think a lot of the other teams do have those deficiencies, but there's no reason to me that South Carolina can't be in that sort of next tier with Auburn and Kentucky, which is where they are in the conference standings right now. Like, I don't see a reason why, like those teams are flawed. Like Auburn still does not have a Q1 win at this point. Kentucky's defense, you know, since Christmas is like sub 100 nationally. It's only, I think it's 75th for the year. Like it's horrible. They've allowed 90 points in three of the last six games. So to me, South Carolina may not have those, you know, overwhelming metrics, but like you said, they do have the wins. They've got some quality wins now, like 
that Tennessee win is going to age amazingly. And I would not be surprised if we get to the last week of the regular season and South Carolina is right there in the, you know, top two or three in the driver's seat to be competing for the SEC. Like to me, Lamont Paris, you know, with Grant McCaslin at Texas Tech, like those are probably the two guys I'm looking at right now is the front runners for coach of the year. Don't think. Brandon, that I heard you slipping BJ Mack and wasn't thinking about his Wofford days. So there may be a little bit of bias there, but I don't blame you for bringing him up. It's been incredible to watch. Michi Johnson, too, Ohio State transfer, has been pretty consistent, and they play at a slow tempo, and that's exactly what they did to Tennessee, turn that game into a slugfest. But last question for me, really quickly here. You mentioned that Duke maybe free money. Like Steven said, it's not necessarily the best term to use on gambling acts. Luckily for you, you're not in that realm. So I'm also happy for you that you don't have to deal with that. (laughs) But if you had to pick one upset, and if it's not Duke UNC, assuming that Duke is a dog, which it will be, should be at the Dean Dome, what's it going to be on Saturday? Yeah, Duke Duke is the one that I think makes the most sense to me just because of the history of the rivalry and how close it's been. Um, you know, I, I, I really, you know, that could go either way. Um, and, and the thing is with all these top 10 matchups, I don't really know that it's fair calling them dogs in the first place. Um, but the other one, obviously to me, that kind of stands out is Kentucky, Tennessee. Um, I think that Kentucky is going to be frustrated, like the way that they lost that game last night, blowing a 30 point lead in the last 30 seconds, uh, a four point lead in the last 30 seconds, excuse me. Um, like that's tough. I think Calipari is going to be upset being at home. Um, I think there's an opportunity for Kentucky here, especially if they're able to get all their guys back, you know, DJ Wagner, get him back get Justin Edwards back having a full complement of players, which is something that you haven't really been able to see say about Kentucky so far this season. I think that's another opportunity. Um, if I can't go Duke UNC, I'm probably going there. I'm probably taking the cats over the balls. All right. So you heard it here first, two locks. Duke oh, and Kentucky. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that to Brandon, but he is Brandon Marks. You can follow him on X. Brandon R. Marks got it right this time. Covering college basketball for the athletic. Really appreciate the time and good luck at the Dean Dome, man. At least you don't have to be involved with the Cameron Crazies. But then again, it's not like you're pissing off Duke fans. So I can do it for you. Yeah. I'll piss off Duke fans for you. I I piss them both off plenty, but I appreciate you guys, and uh, Saturday should be a good one. I'm jealous. Hopefully you guys will get to park on the couch and enjoy it all. All right, Eli, let's wrap things up here for this week's episode of Outside Shots. Just any final thoughts, big picture items you want to touch on uh, before we all sit on the couch, order pizza, drink beer, and have an awesome Saturday of college hoops before Super Bowl week. I hope Denise Jenkins takes 20 mid-range shots against UConn just to piss you off, but he can hit those shots against Donovan Klingon in this Huskies drop coverage defense. That's the only caveat I have to say, even though it's going to make you very angry. Now I might just bet the under in the Houston-Kansas game too, even though it's only going to be in the low 130s, which is crazy to think. I might just bet that out of spite and then then like send you a... you know, send you a pizza delivery from Postmates or whatever. So, or Uber Eats. Cause like, I'm, I'm sick of these good teams with bad shot selection. It's stupid. I'm, I will go to my grave saying it's stupid. So <laughs> Tom Izzo probably, like, me and Tom Izzo would never get along. Cause like me, Mr. <laughs> Analytics, like he, he'd throw me out the door. He'd call he'd call me stupid and throw me out the door. So <laughs> whatever. Awesome show, Eli. A lot of fun. Uh, just a friendly reminder, everybody next week is the Super Bowl. 
And we're going to have an awesome week of content in terms of our podcast audio feed, also our YouTube channel. Several shows, Mo and Eli are putting together a staff bet show from our entire staff at thelines.com. Myself, Adam Candy, Matt Brown will have a couple of shows from the Megapod crew. The Coast to Coast crew is hitting on player props and some of the offerings over at Underdog and Prize Picks if you're not in a in a regulated sports book state. So it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a lot of fun. Stay tuned to the channel. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. So, you know, every time a new episode comes out for Eli Hershkovich, I'm Steven Andres. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Good luck. <laughs>